Well, the, to be uh, maybe a bit brutally honest, it was a busy week for me this week, so we're going to take a bit of a um, break from 1 Samuel, and I'm going to pull one out of the archives from uh, the book of Exodus, and um, we're going to look this evening at a passage which has become uh, dear to me because it's one that I often need to preach to myself, uh, which is from Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 to 27. And this sermon is in, entitled, The Bittersweet Providence of God. Just uh, a week or two ago, we had uh, Marge and Melissa over, and they're kind enough to offer to bring uh, flowers or chocolate for my wife. And they asked what sort of chocolate we might like. And I said, well, I think my wife likes uh, dark chocolate or milk chocolate, but, you know, milk chocolate would probably be better <laughs> for uh, my own sake. At least I think that's how the conversation went. I like sweet, just sweet, no bitter aftertaste. And maybe if we're honest, that's how most of us feel about life as well. We like sweet, only sweet. And you've heard, of course, the quote from, um, oh, I'm blanking now. You know who I'm referring to. Uh, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Someone help me. Forrest Gump, thank you. Forrest Gump, um, and perhaps a more melancholy version of that quote might be, life is like a box of chocolates, sometimes it can be dark and bitter. <laughs> well, the truth is that God's providence can sometimes be bitter, or at least to our taste, seem bitter. And we will be brought through trials and tribulations in our life. And the question is, when God's providence is bitter, how do we respond? When God's providence is bitter, how do we respond? We come to Exodus chapter 15, and the Jewish people knew the bitter providence of God in terms of their servitude, their slavery in Egypt. Their servitude was described as bitter, a bitter, harsh reality. Violence, even genocide at the hands of the Egyptians, being forced to perform feats they could not achieve with the production of bricks, and so on and so forth. And eventually, the Lord heard their cries. He brought them out of Egypt. After many great signs and wonders, plagues to bring judgment upon Egypt, the Lord finally, with the last plague, the plague of the firstborn, He brought them out. He brought them through the Red Sea miraculously with the waters standing as a wall on either side. He brought them marching right through as on dry ground to the other side. And here they've stood 
on the other side of the Red Sea in the wilderness. And in Exodus chapter 15, they start by singing his praise. Singing the praise of the Lord for salvation which he has wrought. And yet, you know, the true test, I think, of our faith often comes not by the praises that we sing when times are good, but the test of our faith can come with greater genuineness in how we respond to trials that the Lord will bring us through. Soon after they come through the Red Sea, they are brought into the wilderness of Shur. And so we come to verse 22, and I'm going to just work verse by verse and bring out some things there at the end. Verse 22 says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, I think it's helpful to sometimes just try to put yourself into Israel's shoes. I'm going to give some illustrations this evening, a variety of illustrations, and and my goal is to help us put put ourselves into their shoes so we can have some sympathy And then we can also reflect inwardly by way of application for our own lives. It's easy to look down on the Jewish people and their sin and forget how we can follow in their footsteps even in ways that might be not as severe of a trial. And so this is no walk on the beach, this hot sand. This is a walk, really, in what's an extension of the Sahara Desert on the Sinai Peninsula. This is hot, it is dangerous, it is arduous, it is a long, long walk. And they can't drink salt water. They've basically gone out in haste from Egypt. And they're walking for three days in the desert with no water sources whatsoever. Imagine that. And what we know beforehand about this three-day journey is that Moses is pleading with Pharaoh repeatedly to go three days into the wilderness that they might offer sacrifice to the Lord. Talks about a three days journey and the Lord will teach them there about the sacrifice to be offered to him. And this three day journey is repeated earlier in the book of Exodus time and time again. Well, they've gone their three day journey and they are famished and they are without water. You know, it's said by way of a sort of statistic, a simple survival statistic is this you can go three minutes without air you can go three hours without heat in the cold exposed you can go three days perhaps at most without water 
and they're at their wits end in terms of dehydration. Has anyone here gone three days without water? I, I seriously doubt it. Most of us have not gone probably more than three hours without water in, in terms of when we've been awake. Three days without water. And anyone that's had to take a long walk somewhere, you, you run out of water, you soon become dehydrated and you might feel like lying down and spoiling in the sun and this is downright dangerous. So three days without water. And so they see this pool of water in the distance and you can imagine perhaps people are probably running to the water. It's not a mirage, it's the real deal. What their actual reaction is, we're not told. But three days without water, I would be running. And they get to this water source, and you can picture people jumping in and trying to lap it up like dogs, thirsty to survive. And what do they discover? It's bitter. They can't even drink it. Finally, after three days in the wilderness, in the hot sun, hiking, walking, with all their livestock, with their children, and, and remember, there's a lot of people. There may well have been close to two million people here. They come to this place, and there's water, and they can't even drink the water. Why? Because it was bitter. They came to Marah. They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. What does Marah mean? Well, you probably have a footnote as I do. Marah means bitterness. Maybe you remember in the book of Ruth, Naomi says, call me Marah because she's bitter. She doesn't want to be named Naomi anymore. She wants to be named Marah because of her bitter circumstances, her suffering. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. She lost everything. She was bitter. And so they named this place, likewise, Mara. Bitter. When God's providence is bitter, how do we respond? You can imagine the disappointment. Disappointment like... A little girl dropping her ice cream on the ground, except much greater than that. Or disappointment like a groom when his wedding is called off. Or disappointment like an elderly widow when again a week passes and no one has called and no one has visited. Disappointment, but disappointment mixed with danger. And it's bitter. The, the suffering in Egypt was bitter. And the water here is bitter. And the people, Israel, become bitter too, don't they? It says, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Verse 24. When God's providence is bitter, how do we respond? Well, often we respond with bitter grumbling. Grumbling. They grumbled against Moses. You see, the question is actually 
a very reasonable question. What shall we drink? This is the most obvious question of all. This is the most necessary question in terms of their physical necessities. What are we going to drink? We're going to die here in the wilderness if we don't have any water. But the truth, of course, is we already know God's promise. He's taken them to the promised land. So they should have no doubt about their survival. But still, there is the wonder, what shall they drink? This is not inherently, I don't think, a sinful question in and of itself, but what we understand to be sinful is that there is this grumbling against. It's not merely a a question. It's not just a simple curiosity about their physical necessities and how they're going to be provided for. There is a discontentment with the circumstances. There is an insubordination, you might say, even toward God's own sovereign hand. And they complain angrily against Moses. You see, there's times in Scripture, even in the Psalms, where the word complain is used, and I don't think it's always necessarily a bad thing. You know, there is legitimacy to expressing sorrow to God, to grieving over our life circumstances to God and asking for help. That isn't in itself bad. And in fact, we're encouraged to do that in prayer as we read through the Psalms. But what is wrong is when such pain and such sorrow is accompanied with an animosity of attitude toward the Lord, toward other people, or disdain in our disposition, or resentment in our heart, or discontentment toward the Lord and His sovereign purposes in our lives. This is grumbling. This is the uh, sin that we see coming out in God's people. Now, I've, I've given this precursor and trying to get our feet in their shoes because I want us to understand how easy it would have been in those circumstances to feel this way. And I think of my own life and I think how quick I am to grumble about far less necessary things. Far simpler things. Far less fundamental things to my survival than water is. How quick I can be to grumble. You know, there is a friend of mine some years back when Bryn and I were in university. Uh, it was kind of the cool, Christian cool thing to do to, during the season of Lent to fast something, to give up something for, for Lent. And so some people would give up Facebook for Lent. Um, and... Uh, this friend of ours, she gave up complaining for Lent. But it was kind of funny because she was known to be someone who complained a lot. And it was almost a running joke because then when she was ever talking to someone, all of a sudden she would just cut herself off mid-sentence and just stop talking. And most of the time she couldn't talk at all because she was so used to complaining. And it was a good example for me because I thought, well, I didn't give that up for Lent, but... How often do I do that? And maybe I should be cutting myself off mid-sentence more often. So easy to grumble. But you know, we tend to think of grumbling as uh, 
a little thing. What 1 Corinthians chapter 10 reminded us of earlier is that grumbling is a deadly sin. You know, the Catholic Church talks about deadly sins. Well, all sins, in a sense, are deadly sins because every sin is deserving of death. And in fact, even in the wilderness wanderings of Israel, eventually this grumbling does, in fact, lead to the Lord bringing judgment upon Israel and people dying in the wilderness because of their grumbling. This is serious sin against God. It is an affront to the trustworthiness of God, to God's own sovereign purposes, to His love and His mercy. It is doubting the mercy and love and kindness of God, the wisdom of His care for His people. And so it is wrong. It is wrong when they grumble. It is wrong when we grumble as well. How we need to be forgiven, how we need to be transformed. And so they come to Marah, they grumble against Moses, they say, what shall we drink? When God's providence is bitter, how would they respond? Well, they grumbled. We often do the same, don't we? But how should we respond? Well, I think we see two things come out in the remainder of the verses. One, we must look to God for grace. We must look to God for grace. How does Moses react? I think he's a good example for us to follow, as we were reminded by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. There's examples to teach us here. How does Moses respond? Well, verse 25, And he, that's Moses, cried to the Lord. He cried to the Lord. Simple as that. He cried to the Lord. He asked God for grace. And it says, And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. So Moses' instinct, commendable, is to pray, to call upon God. Maybe that sounds like a pat answer to you, but brothers and sisters, don't underestimate the importance of prayer in times of suffering, in times of trial, how we must have that as our impulse, as Moses did. When God's providence is bitter, we should call upon His name, cry out before the throne of grace, look to Him for grace. And indeed, it seems immediately upon doing so, the Lord provided a solution. He shows Him a log, and actually I think a better translation, again, you see it probably in your footnotes as I do, He showed Him a tree. Tree is the most straightforward, reasonable translation of that word. Log is kind of a, a reasoning from there because, well, you'd have to cut it down to put it in the water or whatever, but um, tree, the Lord showed him a tree. The tree is thrown in the water. And let me ask you this. If, you, if you're familiar with Exodus, if you've paid careful attention in the book of Exodus to all the Lord's miraculous workings thus far in the book of Exodus... The Lord can perform miracles any way He wants to perform miracles. And in the book of Exodus so far, what God often does is He has Moses take his staff and do something with his staff. Lift it up. 
or later on strike it against the rock or various actions with the staff. And in fact, the staff at one point is called the staff of God. So uh, for whatever reason, there's some significance to the staff. Not that the staff is magical or something, but, but the Lord seems to use it as an instrument of his power or a symbol of his power. But here there is no staff used. And you might wonder why. Why this tree? We'll come back to that later. But what we see is a little different than chocolate. It's not this bitter aftertaste. No, the Lord's providence is bittersweet, you might say, but in a different way than dark chocolate is. There is this bitterness, yes, sometimes. This, the trials, the tribulations that we face. But the Lord, sometimes in this life, but certainly in eternity, He can turn them sweet. He can use them for our eternal welfare. Our momentary suffering and affliction is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Glory which never ends. Bliss and joy and pleasure forevermore at God's right hand. God turns bitter suffering sweet in the lives of His people. And He turns their water sweet for them to drink. And you might wonder, why didn't God just let the water be sweet to begin with? Why couldn't they have just shown up there at the pond at Mara, which would never have been called Mara? Well, why couldn't they have come to this oasis and just drank the water and been satisfied? Or later they come to some palm trees. Why couldn't they just go there first and never have to experience this bitter taste? Well, it says in the remainder of verse 25 that the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and there He tested them. The Lord is testing the faith of His people and He's teaching His people something. He's teaching us something. Remember what Paul says, this is written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. This is an example for us too. He's showing them the way that He works. He's testing their faith. He's trying to teach them to rely on Him and Him alone. I think as well, as we'll see, he's pointing them toward a greater need of salvation. A greater need of redemption. You see, they were brought out of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. But these are folks who are still enslaved to their sin. These are folks who need to be freed from the bitterness of their slavery sin. Only the Lord can do that. And so he says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. 
So one, we see that when God's providence is bitter, we must look to God for grace. And two, what I think the passage is 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 saying to us, when God's providence is bitter, we must listen to His Word. He's calling His people to obedience. He's telling them to listen diligently to His commands, to keep His statutes, to do what is right. And, of course, the standard is perfect obedience. What we see coming down the road in Exodus is God is going to give His people the law. And in the next chapter, they are to be tested in another way in terms of provision with the bread from heaven. God provides not just for their their thirst, but also for their hunger. He sends manna from heaven, and He gives them this command, which you might say is their, their first command as a nation coming out of Egypt. What's the command? To gather manna for six days only. And then rest. And what do they do? They don't do that. They don't gather for six days only and then rest. They try to gather on all seven. And God is preparing them for His law. And He's saying, If you'll diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. If you obey God's law perfectly, you'll live. The fact of the matter is, they can't do that. And they don't do that. And in the very next chapter, they don't do that. And in the remainder of Exodus, and then into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and on and on and on, the standard of the law is obey and live. Disobey, and there is the curse of death hanging over. That is what the law does. And the Lord is giving this law principle which is righteous and which nonetheless condemns the lawbreaker. The implication is that if, if you don't give ear to His commands and keep all His statutes, that He will put the diseases on them which He put on the Egyptians. And that very thing is said in greater detail when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, when they finish all these journeys in the wilderness, and you get to the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28, where in detail God lists all the curses which will come upon His people if they disobey Him. And what do they do? They see all of those things fulfilled. And so there is this conundrum, you might say, in the passage... Because on one hand, God requires of His people this perfect obedience, which they cannot attain to. And then on the other hand, we come to verse 27. What does God do? God provides for them. And in verse 26, He says, I'm your healer. They come to verse 27. It says, They came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. What do we make of that? Well, Normally, I don't make a big deal about numbers in the Bible, but I think it's pretty obvious here that the 12 springs are representative of God providing for the 12 tribes of Israel. The 70 palm trees are representative of the fact that God took 70 people, 70 uh, people in the family of Jacob into Egypt. And now He's taken them out again. So there is this perfect provision for the people of God there at Elam. 
through the palm trees and through the springs, God provides for His people. He's committed to providing for His people. There is this standard of righteousness, and there is this commitment of the Lord to provide for His people, to heal them, to make what is bitter sweet, to redeem. And so the question then is, how will God transform this bitter people? How will God heal their sin? How will God transform us? How will God heal us of our sin? How will God provide for our needs? How will God sweeten our bitter suffering and our, the bitterness of our slavery to sin? How will God do all of this? And you know, we come to a passage such as Isaiah 53, one which we're all well familiar with, I think, but, but by way of working this out through to the New Testament, I think it's a good stop along the way. Isaiah 53. Oh, what a sweet passage this is. I'll read from verse 4. Surely He, that is the suffering servant, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And catch this, with His wounds we were healed. We are healed. How is God going to heal His people? With the wounds of a Savior. With the wounds of one afflicted, pierced for our transgressions. And we come to another passage. This is important, brothers and sisters. Bear with me. We come to two more passages we'll look at. Just two more in the New Testament. Because I want to see this worked through so that we understand how to interpret and apply some of these things. And to think of this as gospel-minded Christians. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. And, and in Galatians 3, Paul speaks of this principle that I was telling you about. In the law, what does the law do? Galatians 3, verse 10 through 14 for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So we can't rely on perfect obedience to God's law to be right with God, to enter that promised land, the land of milk and honey. 
Rather, we must rely on the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself bore the curse of the law that we deserve for our sin. He bore it upon himself when he died where? On a tree. One more passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, or sorry, yeah, 1 Peter chapter 2. Another rich gospel passage, which again, we're familiar with, but you'll see why I'm reading these passages in a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Simple gospel verse, so rich, I'll read it slowly. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He, that is Jesus Christ, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds. You have been healed. Paul makes reference in his quotation to a law in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 17 or 18, about a criminal killed by capital punishment on a tree, and how such, is, such a man is under the curse of God. And so Christ, Christ's death was foreshadowed, in a sense, by that Old Testament law. He was under the curse of God. And as a result of that law, they actually took his body down from the cross. They didn't let his body stay there. They put him in a tomb for burial. But he was under the curse of God for us. But I think, brothers and sisters, and maybe you won't agree with me, but I think, especially from 1 Peter chapter 2, I think the apostles would have seen in a passage like ours a foreshadowing of the cross. Because there is this tree thrown in the bitter water to turn that bitter water sweet so that God's people might be provided for, so that they might live, so that they might be healed, so that they might be sustained there in the wilderness, so that God might save them from certain death. God used a tree. Why a tree and not the staff of Moses? I think he's teaching them something just like he was teaching them something with the manna, just like he was teaching them something when he had Moses strike the rock. And it says the Lord was on the rock. And then he had Moses strike the rock. And then in the New Testament we read, the rock was Christ. So, of course we heard from our pastor earlier this morning, the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. What was God doing there? It was such a peculiar symbol Well, Jesus says in John 3, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So God is using these events in the wilderness journey of Israel to teach something to His people about His provision for their greatest need, for the salvation of their souls, for their deliverance from their sin, for the transformation of their bitter and broken hearts. And this is accomplished through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, who by His wounds were healed, and by His death on that tree, our bitter hearts and our bitter servitude to sin is transformed. 
and we are made well. It is well with our souls, and indeed, we have certainty that our trials and our suffering, and even our previous life of sin, all of it will be used by the Lord for His glory and for our good, and to bring us to the, the promised land, which is the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. I don't think it's spiritualizing to read the text that way. But even if that is not true in that text, I think it's undoubtedly true when we read the New Testament. That this is what the Lord does through the cross of Jesus Christ. We look to Him. We have life. When God's providence is bitter, we cry out to Him. For grace, we look to Him for grace, we listen to His Word, and, and we trust His promises, His purposes as well in this world. His providence is not momentarily sweet and then bitter afterwards like chocolate. No. God's providence might seem now to you bitter the trials, the tribulations you might face, the suffering you might face. Maybe, maybe you find yourself in similar circumstances to Naomi. You lose a husband, a wife, a child, a home. Maybe you are struggling with physical challenges, very real physical challenges like the people of Israel. Or certainly all of us we're struggling with trials and tribulations. We're struggling with sin. And yet what we can be confident of is that the Lord will use our momentary suffering, our momentary trials and tribulations for His grand purposes and He will sweeten them with eternal sweetness thereafter in glory forever. Sometimes we might even see things in this life, but maybe not. And that's okay because when Christ returns, everything will be made new. And all the suffering and all the pain and all the anguish that we experience here and now will be done. And God is preparing for us unimaginable pleasure and glory and bliss at His right hand forevermore. There is a tree of life as well, which is for the healing of the nations, which we will one day see, won't we, brothers and sisters? So let's forsake our grumbling. Let's be content in the Lord regardless of our circumstances, and let's trust Him until the day of our ultimate redemption and give Him praise even in our pain. And let me also commend to anyone, if you're here today and you are caught up in the slavery of sin and your heart is consumed with bitterness even against the Lord and you're not trusting in His character or His promises and you, your soul is just in anguish and exhausted and thirsty, Hear the words of the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, 
come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You see, there is that legal way to righteousness which no one attains by works of the law. And then there is the free offering to all who are thirsty. Come to Christ. Come and have your soul satisfied and your bitter heart transformed and your sins forgiven and your heart renewed. Be cleansed. Be satisfied. And indeed, one day, we will be glorified with Him as well. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You that indeed, even in our trials and tribulations, we have great reason to hope and to be content in You. You are our guide, and You care for us. And we pray, Lord, that You would help us to not gossip or grumble. Help us to trust You. Help us to submit to Your your sovereign purposes. Help us to remain steadfast under trial and to live for You, glorifying Your name, no matter the suffering. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. We will close with the song.